0: Flip open of your Bible uh, and uh, Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 to 11 we're going to look at. I'm going to be reading from the ESV sheet of paper in a moment so I'll just give you a chance to catch that. Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 to 11 then Shabu's going to come and uh, tell us a little bit more about this passage and what we can learn from it. We want to go away changed today as uh, we read, we look carefully at God's word, we listen to it. And then we obey uh, what it has to say. So, Philippians three, uh, chapter one, uh, sorry, chapter so Philippians three, uh, verses one to eleven. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law... the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for this great passage. And we would pray now for your servant, Shabu, as he brings your message to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Thanks, John. Let me just find my little spot in Philippines, Galatians Visions. There we go, cool. Um, hey, welcome again. Once again, if you're visiting Canterbury Gardens, it's great to have you here with us. Um, we have been traveling and we've been deliberately taking our time through the book of Philippians. Uh, we've been quite deliberate and slow in it. Uh, and, and this morning, I want to jump straight into it because um, we've got a bit of ground to cover uh, this morning. Uh, John prayed for us, and this is probably more for myself, so would you bear with me as I pray? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, continue, as John has prayed, to make these words come alive. Oh God, what a wonderful reminder of your grace, as Matt shared, and your mercy to us. Warm our hearts, make them come alive and help us to live these truths out. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, last week, we wanted to kind of look at two lives, and uh, I was reminded this week that I was saying a particular name wrong. You can figure which one that was. There was Timothy, and I'll call the other guy E, right? And, and uh, we were looking at their lives, and we were unpacking what it would look like to have a Christ-interested life. And we were asking the question, what are the things that are driving you? What interests? Are they Christ's interests or is it something else? This morning, what I want to do is kind of unpack these verses for us. And firstly, we're going to begin with verses 1 and 2. We're going to hear and reflect on a warning. Secondly, we're going to look at verses 3 to 6. And we're going to talk about what a fake confidence is about. And finally, we're looking at 7 to 11 and we're looking at losing to... Paul uh, has been writing this letter, we've been walking through this, and now as he's been talking about the interests and being interested in the things of Christ, it's almost like he shifts to something almost sounds like a separate matter, but if in the whole context of Philippians, it's actually not uh, quite a separate matter. It's a significant uh, statement that he's making in these first few verses that we see in chapter 3. At first, when we look at it, it sounds almost odd, particularly in verse 1. He, he begins with finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you he is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, even in that very little statement where he says rejoice in the Lord, it almost sounds like a greeting. If you read a lot of the New Testament letters, Paul says, and he begins with the statement, rejoice in the Lord. It's like in some sense, if you were writing, let's say, say, day, But see, this rejoice has a deeper meaning. And I think Paul has been quite deliberate and why he's saying rejoice in the Lord at the very start of this section. He's, I think, setting a foundation for you and I as we look at this. And even for this church, the Philippian church, he's reminding them of a simple but wonderful truth. We were reminded of that as Matt shared his testimony. In a sense, he's saying to them, Hey, Philippian church, followers of Jesus Christ... Take great joy in God's grace. Rejoice in his grace. And the reason why he's doing that, we'll see why he's reminding this church from the word get-go, rejoice in the grace. Because he wants to remind this church of this truth. Because there's a reason why. Because as he says, he says rejoice. He's reminding them. Because then he's about to move into warning them. He warns them. He gives them three warnings. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, in our day and time, in 2017, when we read this, it sounds kind of abnormal, and we might go, what's the point here? All of a sudden, Paul is either writing or reciting this. He's gone on a bit of a soapbox, and he's decided to go on a bit of a rant. He's seen the latest Facebook feed, and something's really irking him, and he's just gone for it. I mean, is Paul a cat person? Is that why he's saying this statement? Now, if you're a dog person, what I'm about to say may offend you, so please cover your ears. There'll be prayer time afterwards with Nathan and Julie. In Paul's life and in history, there's these two constant people that are constantly attacking him, his ministry, and the gospel message. Firstly, there were those who were grace abusers. The message of the gospel, yes, we get grace. So that means we can live any way we want because we have grace. Then there were those who I would call the grace adders. They would say, yes, grace, but there's these extra bits and pieces that you need to do to be a true follower of Jesus. And here he's warning the Philippian church. The language here is to say, hey, discern, keep a look at. keep a discerning look at for these people. Because ultimately what they are, are people who are against the gospel of grace. They're actually adding to the gospel of grace. In those times, they were known as Judaizers. Now, If you Google Judaizers, you can find information about it. But imagine if Judaizers had a website that they set up, judaizers.com, and you go there. You find out and you see the little tag that says about These may some of the things that you hear about them. Now, to understand them a bit more, you can actually read another letter that Paul wrote called Galatians, and he really lets everyone know what he thinks about them. Ultimately, these were a group of people who became followers of Jesus, but they came from a Jewish heritage, a very strong Jewish heritage. And what they wanted to say was, listen, yes, believe in Jesus, but you need to then continue to follow these Jewish customs in particular the Jewish laws, and particularly some of the ceremonial things. See, at the heart of this is that these Judaizers would come along usually at the tail end of after Paul's mission and add to the gospel. In some sense, they want to keep these Gentiles in control. And their timing was always frustrating, I think. If I was Paul, I'd be getting frustrated. You can actually see the first time they kind of pop up their heads in in Acts, in Acts 15. There's a big discussion about it. And what they're really doing is putting on a yoke. They're putting something else extra to these Gentiles who don't have a Jewish heritage, who've no, never grown up with these Jewish ceremonial things that these Judaizers grew up with. So what do they want to do this is where you get this term Judaizer. They want to Judaize the people by giving them these Jewish religious customs they had to follow. It seems that they agreed with most of the apostles' teaching but they wanted to regulate these non Jews. In some sense, what they were doing is they'd come along, these non Jewish people, and say, Hey, great that you responded to the Messiah Jesus, but did you know the Messiah is Jewish? Because he's Jewish, you need to also do these particular things to be truly staying right with God. You need to be circumcised, you need to keep these ceremonial laws that's required. And in a sense, what says what they were doing was adding to the gospel of grace. And Paul's response to them is quite deliberate. He's very pointed. He's using really strong language. He says, "Hey, keep a discerning lookout for these dogs." Now when we hear the word "dogs, particularly if you're a dog owner. You'll think, oh, oh, cute little puppy, come and lick my face and lick my lips while I go and talk to somebody else. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure if you do that. But see, in that culture, in that time, they are not all had domesticated dogs, but most of the dogs roamed the streets, and they were seen as unclean animals, and I agree with them. Oh, that's a bit harsh, I know. But they were unclean animals. <laughs> Nathan's giving me a look here, I should just stop. They were seen as unclean animals, right? And so for, for Paul to use this language, if you're a Judaizer, listening or hearing this, you're a dog, it's like saying you're unclean. Everything about you is unclean. It's a metaphor to say, even go deeper, say that what, who they are are impure. They themselves are impure, even though they think they're not. Then he digs even deeper And he wants to go even further and say, they think by getting everyone to do these religious rites, they're doing good work. Paul is saying ultimately they're actually just doing evil work. It's contrary to the gospel. Because at the end of the day, what he's saying is, all these people, they, they think they're doing the right thing, they're doing religious practice, but what they're doing is everything is driven by an evil mind. And what they offer is impure offering to God. And how that's played out is they think that circumcision is holy and pure, and Paul says he uses strong language. All they're doing is mutilating the flesh. He's been quite deliberately strong. He's warning the Philippian church to keep a discerning lookout for these Judaizers. Now, it's odd when we read these kind of things. It's sometimes it's easy for us in 2017 to kind of skip over it and go, oh yeah, that was for that time. I mean, it's not like John, Nathan, or me, uh, you know, Matt and Paul just joined our church, and we said to Matt, Matt, we have a particular ceremonial thing that we do for newcomers. We don't do that. Right? It seems very distant. But see, since Christ came to this world, died on the cross, was raised again on the third day. Since his resurrection, there's constantly, continuously, always threats of the gospel of grace. That has not changed. There's constant threats coming towards the gospel of grace. See, Paul is calling these, the church to reject these guys. Because at the end of the day, what they're saying is that their right standing with God is based on these practices, continuing practices. And in some sense, what he's saying to them is that if we use nowadays language to trade really close to God, to stay right with the creator of the universe, you have to keep doing these ritual things. Because that's what your ultimate rest and salvation will be. As you, some of you know, there's been a guy that I've been meeting with uh, every almost every week, we get together. We read the Gospel of Luke, and it's been quite amazing to see what God's been doing in his life and revealing these truths to him. All we do is read a chapter. He's an introvert; he doesn't talk much, which is hard for me. So I have to learn to be quiet and listen. And now, uh, you know, we ask questions and we talk, and then he leaves. There was this one time we were reading the Gospel of Luke, and we came to the point where Jesus is talking about the way, the truth, and the life. It's very clear. And I said to him, does this make sense to you? Uh, He goes, yeah, it does. I'm like, okay, now what? And I was sitting there, I I think the Lord was just helping with it. I just asked him, hey, just a quick question. When I say to you that I'd love for you to become a Christian, are you hearing that I'm asking you to just come to church? He goes, oh yeah, that's what a Christian means, isn't it? Just going to church. Now, in that moment, I'm hearing this man who's trying to explore Jesus. He thinks Christian means this. There's this particular outworking of what it means to live there. And for him, that's a challenge because he thinks about his life. He thinks about his history. He thinks about his current struggles that he's having every day. And to come into a church building or a church service where he thinks that there are all these wonderful stand-up people who've got life absolutely perfect, absolutely right, doing the right things. I told him the truth afterwards, but that's the feeling he gets. He thinks he needs to get to some sort of standard or things it means coming to church is the ceremonial thing that he has to do. And I mean, look, maybe you've grown up in this background. I certainly did. There's this idea that, yes, it is all about grace. Yes, it's about putting your faith in Jesus Christ, but A real Christian wears particular types of clothes. If yes, yes, it is about grace, it is about the gospel of Jesus. Yeah, but you can only truly find it in a particular version of the Bible. Oh, yes, yes, it is the gospel of grace. It is about grace alone. Yeah, yeah, I get it, but you can only truly find real truth in certain types of songs, particularly when there are certain instruments missing. Oh, yes, it is the gospel of grace. Yes, it is all about Jesus, but you know, you can only find that in a true particular denomination. I remember there was a wonderful uncle of mine. There's a few relatives that go to my church, this church here, so they don't go here. And it was in my rebellious days when I totally rejected God. And it was in the 90s. I was going through a two-pack um, time. And if you don't know who Tupac is, look it up. And I had a shaved head. I had a goatee. And I thought it was, you know, pretty gangster. Look that up as well if you want. Now, I'd walk into this house and he meant well. I I genuinely think he meant well. He loved me. He knew that I wasn't walking with the Lord. And he saw my shaved head. As I walked into his room, he comes up to me, pulls out his particular version of the Bible and says to me, look at this verse. The verse says, thou shalt not have clippers to the side of your head. Now, I get it. He's trying to reach me. But I don't know if that's where I would start. He meant well. There may be even a sense, yes, it is the gospel of grace, but these secondary issues of theology have become more important. If you don't believe these things, then you're not really. Friends, the warning to Paul, from Paul to the Philippian church, I think, is also relevant for us today. To ask and reflect, are we adding in any way to the gospel of grace? Now, don't mishear me. God calls us to live a holy life, empowered by His Spirit. We are called to be salt and light. God makes it very clear. You see that in Philippians. It's coming out. In in a few weeks, you hear a little bit more about that. But it's not about adding to this message of the gospel of grace to somehow think in doing these particular practices or religious rites is what will keep you in right standing with the creator of the universe. We heard about it this morning. It's grace alone. Ultimately, it's really creating this sort of fake confidence. It's setting up like this religious rites of, it's all outward appearance to somehow show that you actually belong to Jesus. And at the end of the day, it's all flesh-based. It's not spirit-based. And this is why Paul, in verse 3, reminds the Philippian church deliberately who they are. They are of the real circumcision. They should worship by the Spirit of God. And they should glory in Christ Jesus. He's saying your display and your commitment to Jesus Christ as your Savior actually begins inwards. It starts at your heart. The circumcision begins there. And then which leads to true worship through the Holy Spirit. It's not based on circumcision or rituals and ultimately it leads to a better more glorious thing the glory of god he gets all the praise not you philippine church not paul not you not me and in the rest it's saying it's like saying it's all about christ's confident work it's all about jesus work not them and he says listen he kind of almost now goes into displaying his own testimony in his life. He says, hey, if you, if you think that you've got confidence in the flesh, well, check out my resume. Check out who I was. Here's my testimony, verses 4 to 6. He says to him, I was circumcised on the eighth day. It's like to say, hey, my parents were Jews, and they were so religious. They lived by the book, and I got circumcised as it was commanded by the Old Testament. I need to be circumcised on the eighth day. I was there. He talks about being a people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. It's like when you look up the history of Paul's life, his his family tree, he's like saying, hey, I'm not a Gentile for one. I am a Jew of all Jews. My family history is strong. You could actually maybe even track it back to the Old Testament and and say how related I am to some of these people from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's saying, I'm the real deal. And then from talking about his his, um, confidence in the flesh, he says, Hey, you look at my life, you look at my status, you look at my history, I had confidence in that. Oh, okay, if that's not enough, let me show you how I lived it out. I was a law keeper, I was a Pharisee. He not only knew the Old Testament meticulously, he knew the extra bits of the Old Testament that they added by the time Jesus came. He knew it, he lived it, he practiced it. That was his confidence in the flesh. He thought that in doing those things, he was going to be right with the creator of the universe. And then he even drives him further to say, well, if you want to show what my resume looks like, my life looks like to show my zeal, I'm going to show you I lived this out. I became a persecutor of the church. His convictions, his pharisaical convictions, his Hebrew uh, Jewish background drove his convictions to pursue people to even murder them and be involved in that. And you can read that in Acts. To jail people, to throw families in jail. And so this is his background, even the point. It's like saying, if you bought the law against Paul, he'd be blameless. In some sense, I think Paul's been quite deliberate. If you were a Judaizer, I wonder if Judaizer was listening to this. It's like saying, those Judaizers, they're amateurs in comparison to me. It's like saying if today in our day and age, it's like saying, Oh, you know what? Paul came to church since he was a baby. His mum brought him into a pram in church. He was born to a Christian, strong Christian family, has a strong Christian heritage. And he was one of those kids while kids during school holidays were out playing, his mum and dad forced him to memorize the Bible, every single key verses, maybe even the original language. He was that kid at Sunday school that got all the gold stars that everyone got annoyed about. He was that kid that would come up to older people and just tell them, you're doing wrong, you're sinning against God, and quote it, the verse that was appropriate to that. He's that guy, if modern days, when he saw those things that some of these people who seemed to be getting away with grace would jump on the blogs and on their Facebook posts and argue with them and quote verses and throw it at them and just slam dunk them. And he's the kind of guy that if someone thought, oh, he's a good Christian person, we could ask. He saw himself, it's him. He's the poster boy. But friends, all for him, that was all fake confidence. It was confidence in the flesh. And friends, that's a wonderful, poignant reminder even to you and to me. It's a reminder to ask, is that the same of me? What am I putting my confidence in? Is there anything that is of the flesh rather than in Christ. It's a note to both those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. And if you are someone who does not know Jesus, this is a note to you as well. Religious Being religious does not save you. It's a fake confidence. And for us to gain something, we need to lose. And that's what we see in verses 7 to 11. If you have your Bibles, if you could turn there with me, and I think these are probably one of the most powerful verses ever written down. This is Paul writing, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain them. Sorry. For this sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and His power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. Lord, I pray as we meditate on these words, that you would make them come alive to wherever we are in our season of life. Amen. Like I was saying, I think in front of us, from verses 7 to 11, are probably one of the most key statements about the Christian faith. And you know, if you take these truths out of these verses from the Christian faith, the Christian faith won't be around. Without these verses, without these truths, the Christian faith would just become another religious thing, another religious right that religious people live out. These verses are powerful and a wonderful reminder to you and I even today. And see, if you're someone who's exploring the Christian faith, maybe you've come here today or maybe you've grown up in church background and you thought the Christian faith was just about living a particular religious set of lifestyle and rules. These verses are a reminder, no. It's a reminder to you and me. And if you are someone who is a follower of Jesus, this is a wonderful reminder to you and me that our faith is ultimately built on losing to gain so much more. So much more. See, in this moment, Paul begins and he reflects back on his life. He's contrasting. I mean, this is a man who had so much I mean, he thought he had confidence. He was a Pharisee. He was doing what was required of the law. He thought he was doing what he could to stay in right relationship with the creator of the universe. But on that road, when he he encountered the risen Christ, the risen Christ says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the gospel invades his life and he's transformed, and his world gets turned upside down. Not only that, his whole thinking and framework starts getting turned upside down, and now he's starting to discover and realize his right standing with God is nothing to do with based on his heritage as a Jew or his religious practices that he did as a Pharisee, neither his zeal for persecuting the church. And in this moment, he's reflecting, I wonder, even to this church, and he's saying, whatever gain he had, whatever advantage that he had, he thought, it's actually damage, it's loss. Why? Because of Christ. And then not only that, he talks about his past, and he reflects even now to us, in front of us, his life now. Even to the point that even his life now, even in his own life, he's got damaged, lost. he's in suffering but what stands out to him, what stands out to him is capturing him in his whole life is far more, it's far more greater, something far more prominent, something far more better, is that knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord, his Savior, and in knowing this, he realizes it has come at a cost. I mean, Paul has, and the language here is that he sustained damage For this, and we know that he's writing this letter from prison. I mean, and we know about his life. You read about in Acts, he's been shipwrecked. One of my favorite stories of Paul, and you might have heard this other preachers talk about this, is when he is shipwrecked. Right, he's on the way to prison. He gets shipwrecked, and then as he's in this island called Malta, he gets bitten by a snake. Now, in that moment, if I was Paul, I'd be like, "Lord, seriously, I've had enough. I'm done." I mean, you could also think that Paul in, in his own journey, he would have lost his income because he was a Pharisee supported by the pharisaical tribe to go and persecute the church. Everything that he thought was of secure and confidence and gone. And now he becomes dependent on the creator of the universe to provide for him, including this church, who's ministering to him financially. And his response is not, why God? This is not fair, I'm doing the Lord's work. His past. He's no confidence in it. His earthly moment, even now in his suffering, there's no confidence in those things in the flesh because he sees that in a particular way in verse 8. He counts them as rubbish. Now, I don't know what translation you have in your Bible. The original language is much stronger. The original language says he counts it as dung. He counts it as poop. He counts it as excrement of animals, dregs. That's the filthiest thing you could even imagine. If you're a dog owner, you know when you hold that poo after the dog poops? That's you. I don't know why I said that. Sorry, strike it out. It's terrible. Sorry, I apologize for that. Anyway, but see, for him, that's all rubbish because he's gaining Christ. And because of who Christ is, he's willing to lose it all. His whole life is captured by this. That means that so to the point that even his own status, that he thought was of great importance, his great confidence, rubbish, because now who cares? He has Christ. That religious history that he kind of lived his life on, all those practices, rubbish because he has gained Christ. All those jail trips, shipwreck, beaten, and one day he would get martyred for the faith. It doesn't matter to him. Who cares? He has gained Christ. This is why that verse of "to live is Christ, to die is gain." Even in death, to Paul it didn't matter. He had gained Christ. He now knew that he is now secure in his relationship with God because of Christ. He's completely secure. You would have heard last few weeks we've talked about a particular term called justified. It's like a stand, a stand right standing before the creator of the universe is to say there's nothing more that you can do. Another thing that doesn't come out deliberately out here but it's alluded to is a word particularly called imputed. It's to say it's been given to you. This righteousness, this is God's righteousness, his son's righteousness has been given to you and Paul is finding security in that. It's not because of the law, not because of what he thought he was keeping, it's all because of somebody else's work. It's because of Jesus' perfect work and faithfulness and his righteousness now has been given to Paul. It's all based on Jesus' faithfulness. I don't know if you guys have ever been skydiving. I haven't. I don't know if I ever will. Uh, unless you're like one of those expert skydivers and you jump out of the plane all by yourself. I love watching people who go skydiving, right? And they put it up on Facebook. and say, oh, I've been skydiving. It's awesome. But you look at the video Right, They're at the skydiving place, they go on the plane, they're strapped to someone really awkwardly, and they jump out of the plane. Now, as I'm watching these videos, usually they're screaming and stuff, but somebody else is pulling the cord, somebody else is holding them, they're landing and somebody else is guiding their landing. Now, they get off and they say, I skydived. Somebody helped you skydive. You're getting lots of likes on Instagram there. Great. Now, friends, in some sense, that's like what's going on here when we talk about Christ's righteousness imputed to us. It's all Christ's work. It's all his merciful work in our lives. And the boasting then is what Jesus has accomplished. It's all based on his effort, his righteousness. And to those of us who know him now, he's given that to us as we commit our lives to him as our Lord and Savior. It's all based on his faithfulness. And then we respond to that message in faith, in trust. if you're someone who does not know Jesus, you might have been thinking that the Christian faith is about being a good person. It's about doing good things. You may even think it's about, you know, living a particular lifestyle, and if you, as long as you do that, somehow God will accept you. I want you to know, in some sense, what you're really doing is you're buying yourself into heaven. It's not going to work, because there's a problem. There's a heart problem. This is why it feels like it's never enough. You're constantly trying harder and harder. You're wanting to hope somehow meet that need, that that. that deep need that you realize you need to meet where somehow your good stuff will outweigh your bad stuff that you've done it won't there's only one Jesus Christ who was able to fix that problem he's the one who did the ultimate good work he's the one who the father of the creator of the universe says this is my son in whom I am well pleased and he goes to the cross and he becomes sin on your behalf and my behalf and he takes that wrath that we deserve but because of who he is on the third day, he's risen again. He's Lord. And then he's calling you and he's calling me to say, follow me, commit and give your life to me, to my loving Lordship, and I will give you my righteousness. You don't need to work for it. I've done it. It's finished. And friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, the only reason that you and I have been accepted by the creator of the universe is because of our Savior's faithfulness. It's because of when you gave your life to him in faith, in trust, he sealed you with his Holy Spirit, sealed you with his righteousness. That means you are secure. You are completely secure in him. That means going to church is not what makes you right with God. Neither is it about going to a mission trip that makes you right with God. Neither is it about being born into a Christian family that makes you right with God. Neither being involved in lots and lots and lots and lots of ministries that what makes you right with God. Neither is it being a pastor or an elder of a church that makes you right with God. It's what Jesus is doing and what he has done. It's Jesus in you that makes you right with the creator of the universe. That's what makes us right with God. And when we capture this truth... All the things in life that may come, we consider it as absolute rubbish in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. I think sometimes as the team, we grieve. There are people who are so caught up in thinking that the assurance is in their religious works. Your assurance is not in your religious works, it's resting in the given grace of Christ. And friends, if you are someone, whether at Canterbury Gardens or involved in any kind of church ministry, and you are in any way adding to the gospel of grace, I'm lovingly telling you, stop. Turn to Christ and repent. And friends, when you and I rest in the knowledge of the gospel, this wonderful truth of Christ, You know what it means? It shifts and makes us understand there's no room for pride. We don't look at anyone better than us. We all need that grace. That means when we rest in this truth that's serving, whether if it's going on a mission trip, whether if it's serving in ministries, whether if it's being involved in all this Christian stuff, it all becomes about the audience of one, Jesus Christ. It becomes an act of worship. And so this is why I think I love the way Paul finishes in verse 10 to 11. And he, I think, is simply helping that church and maybe even and us today to refocus our hearts. What does it mean to live a life resting in the finished work of Christ? Well, it begins by aiming to know Jesus. As you call yourself a follower of Jesus, that's your call to know Jesus to your final breath until you meet him. Secondly, is to experience. That is to say, the language you see has experienced the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you, experiencing His Spirit work in you. That means being dependent on the Holy Spirit to live a life that God has called you to. So as the Spirit produces fruit, you represent Christ in this world. And then to finally share and participate in the suffering. Now, the Christian faith does not promise you that everything will go well. You heard about Matt Sherry about it earlier. The Christian faith does promise there may be suffering, there may be trial, and there will be different ways for all of us. But we are following someone who has gone before us. Jesus Christ who has suffered. And finally, Paul reminds them to even die. Because to Paul, this life, this wasn't home for him. He heard Matt mention it again. There's beyond this life. His goal was not to arrive, to kind of live a good life, it was to go beyond. It was the new life, the purpose for all followers of Jesus. So, Christian friend, where is your confidence? You may even believe that Jesus has saved you, but have you fallen back in thinking and what you do somehow keeps you right with God? Stop. I'm calling you to please stop and rest in Jesus' finished work and grace. Jesus is your righteousness. Rest in his grace. I've been thinking about this week as we conclude. just love to get the music team to come up. Some questions I've been reflecting as I've been thinking on this passage and maybe may be of helpful to you. Maybe this week, Why don't you take time to sit and write down these verses and reflect on Christ and His finished work? Maybe ask this question. If you're involved in any ministry at Canterbury Gardens or other kind of ministry of some sort, if you all of a sudden had to stop and weren't able to do it, would Christ still love you? Would Christ still love you? The answer is yes, because He does love you. At home, in your life, or whatever stage of life you're in, is there in any way that you're adding to the gospel? And the way you communicate things, the do things, and thinking that will somehow keep you right with God. And many of you, particularly in this context, Paul is saying, watch out for those Judaizers. In a sense, if you're mentoring and discipling others and in, in, in putting into their life, are you ultimately just laying heap of stuff to do to, for them to do? Or is the motivation for them to rest in Christ and let God do His work the submission to the Holy Spirit? That brings long, lifelong change. So friends, rest in Christ's righteousness, what He has done. What a wonderful Savior we have. Let me pray. Jesus, I pray that you will continue to shape us, help us to rest in your finished work. As we sing this last song, Lord, may we just worship you with great freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.